Hi, I'm Gordon Lanthier with The Real Finds Podcast, a podcast series where we interview key entrepreneurs, scientists, and activists that are shaping the real estate industry and, as a result, our world. On today's podcast, we'll be speaking with Brian McLaren, Chairman and CEO of Zone Properties. Zone Properties is a leading real estate development firm for emerging and highly regulated industries. This includes regulated cannabis. On the podcast, we'll discuss the keys to cannabis site location, the ins and outs of financing highly regulated deals, and the evolution of cannabis real estate from the Wild West to a complex and maturing growth industry. Hey, everyone. Thank you, Brian, for hopping on the podcast today. Uh, he's a great uh, guest to talk about the cannabis space. And uh, Brian, can you start off by uh, talk, telling us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, thanks, Gordon. And uh, good morning, good afternoon for anyone in the audience, depending where you're, where and when you're <laughs> tuning in and listening in. Um, my name is Brian McLaren. I'm the chairman and CEO of Zoned Properties. We're based in Scottsdale, Arizona, and we are a specialty real estate development firm. We're focused, our, our general overview is focused on highly complex and regulated real estate development. Uh, but 99% of what we've been doing recently and really for the past decade is regulated cannabis. So our company, our team, what we do is, is we serve third-party clients with real estate services like advisory, consulting. We have a full commercial brokerage. We do that work nationally. And we also have an investment acquisition and development arm where we put capital into these projects. We step in as landlord or uh, developer and place regulated licensed cannabis tenants in these sites. So it's, uh, it's been a wild ride for the past decade and it is a, a, a fast paced, highly complex industry that's never boring, that's for sure. So how do you get into the industry? Because th there are a lot of stories of how folks get into the cannabis space. How does someone get in it from the commercial real retail perspective? Yeah, and uh, maybe Gordon, I'm thinking for the audience, it might be helpful too. I'll, I'll answer this question with a preamble about regulated cannabis for context. So <clears throat> for anyone that hasn't been tracking or seeing headlines about <laughs> marijuana, weed, pot, kind of coming to your community, for really the past 20 years, this grassroots movement, very similar to environmental sustainability, energy policy reform, it's been a national community by community advocacy movement to rethink and, and adjust how we treat cannabis or marijuana, um, which is still to this day a federally illegal substance. And over the past few decades, state by state, the voters primarily have passed ballot initiatives to legalize regulated cannabis systems. And there's also been legislative state congressional reform. And we've had now four to five years of federal discussions about how we're going to legalize this at the federal level. So <clears throat> when I say it's highly complex and highly volatile, that's really what I'm talking about is that you have a, a puzzle board of hyper-local, which is something I think most real estate and commercial developers are familiar <laughs> yeah. with. Yes, yeah. these, these processes, the, the variables and, and puzzle pieces that impact real estate development vary city to city, county to county, you know, the 40,000 localities we have in this country. So yeah, how does one get into it? 
Um, and I'll, I'll try to keep this focus here. I could just ramble on forever, Gordon, but it's fine. Ramble on, ramble on. <laughs> we'll get to some really valuable, mineable nuggets for the audience here in a moment. But yeah, so my background is in sustainable development. Um, I spent many, many years in graduate school doing research and then working for some of the largest uh, higher education universities, some of the largest Fortune 100, Fortune 500 companies, building these sustainable systems from complex challenges like zero waste or putting up a local renewable energy, a wind turbine, for example, in a city that's never had one. You know, how do you deal with bringing these new concepts into the local level and, and navigate the complexity of code, laws, real estate development? And so I was kind of that guy at a bunch of these different organizations. And about 12 years ago now, really in 2010 to 2012, the regulated cannabis discussion was really heightening in the Southwest. So California, Arizona. Um, and I got introduced to, to a group that was looking at pursuing some of the business. And one of the things that seemed to really be missing was real estate knowledge and compliance knowledge. The same things I was doing, addressing complex challenges and building systems for sustainable development in the newly regulated cannabis space. So fast forward a decade, and that's the same idea we've built zoned properties from. And our goal is really to bring real estate solutions to cannabis operators, the businesses that are licensed to do this legalized and regulated work, and to real estate owners. So marrying those two especially again 40,000 localities the cannabis regulations the real estate laws are different in almost every single one and making sure that there's a good match for a cannabis operator and a piece of property whether they become an owner operator or a third party long term investment grade lease sale leasebacks you know all this stuff we can talk about but that's that's what we're focused on so cannabis is a diverse space right um, and so I think there's a lot of confusion. People either think cannabis is just that retail location or it's, uh, you know, just grow houses, right? Um, what, what are we operating on in terms of the cannabis space? Is it, it uh, how diverse is the asset class? Yeah, it's it's pretty diverse. And, and to understand why that's the case, and I'll, I'll unpack what mean by diverse in the asset class for cannabis in a moment, but it's really connected to, again, how this legalized state by state in different ways at different times. So one of the most important things to understand when it comes to commercial real estate and cannabis is the licenses that allow these tenants or owner operators to operate a legal facility. Some states have created programs where you have vertical licensing all the way through the supply chain and a licensed owner can have the grow rights at the cultivation, the processing rights, a kitchen and edible manufacturing, a infused beverage manufacturing, distribution, so delivery, warehousing, dropship logistic, and then also the retail dispensary doors that are consumer facing. Other states, those licensed tiers are broken apart. And each state has different regulations on size or quantity. So it's, it's very similar to the history of alcohol prohibition and liquor distributor licenses or 
casino licenses, you know, the famous riverboat casinos in the Midwest. (laughs) This same thing is occurring in cannabis as prohibition is lifting. So the asset classes are directly impacted by that licensing. And some states have extremely limited licensing. So only a handful of licenses statewide. And some states are unlimited, you know, thousands and thousands of licenses. The reason that is important for the real estate and asset classes is until we have federal reform, there is no interstate transport. So each state market is its own case study, its own vacuum. Uh, And so those asset classes, everything from large land development, agricultural, greenhouse, industrial, right in you know, suburban population centers, and then commercial retail. Those are the primary asset classes. And again, you're dealing with typically either owner-operated sites. That's a risk mitigation mechanism for the cannabis operator so they don't have a landlord that holds them hostage on a lease renewal or, or isn't comfortable. We'll talk about in a moment the specific risks that come with owning a property that's leased to a cannabis operator. Um, But then you have these mostly triple net investment grade passive leases where kind of, you know, the landlord is protecting their building and collecting a rent check. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've worked with some of our investors. We've had potential cannabis users come in and there's there's definitely a lot of complexity there and, and challenge in most spaces or most landlords that are already pretty profitable often are hesitant. Can you talk a little bit about, I think uh, one of the things that's always interested me is, um, uh, is there a large contingent of folks that lease? Because it seems that most people, it's owner user or, you know, an, an owner sale the lease back or, or, or that kind of situation. Yeah. And it's, it's a unique, I would say, audience or class of property owner and landlords that are, that have navigated the system. If you do it well, um, if you have people on your team, either internally through your investment or if you're a family office that's focused on building a small REIT, for example, if you understand the complexity, it can be very profitable. So supply and demand, because of the very difficult zoning and permitting in each locality and state by state, if you're in a, a highly dense populated area and there's limited property available because of the zoning, your property could yield two, three, sometimes more multiples of premium rent. Now you have to be careful because obviously you don't want to choke your tenant just because you can (laughs) demand something doesn't mean that's sustainable. Um, But the, the reason it's still, I'd say very early, and there are a lot of real estate owners, investors, and landlords kind of watching from the sideline is until we have federal reform, there are real barriers to entry for a lot of property owners, a lot of fatal flaws. So the the big ones tend to be insurance on the property. So understanding that the underwriting process and your insurance carrier, probably, (laughs) probably now, the industry is matured enough, probably now has an exclusion for cannabis. So anyone that has a cannabis tenant listening right now, Go immediately check your insurance policy and and see if if the word cannabis is mentioned. Uh, If it's not, you might want to check with your agency. Um, So insurance is the first big one. Commercial debt is the second. Almost all commercial debt lending 
facilities or lines or whatever structure you have, most real estate people are leveraging outside capital, smart thing to do, um, <laughs> but have policies for no federally illegal activity. So that's a huge issue. There are now capital sources, banks, REITs that will finance these properties. You got to make sure that you have one that knows what you're building is operating with its tenancy and that doesn't void anything or cause any defaults. So check with your attorneys. Um, and then the third big one is servicing. So a huge barrier to entry for big commercial landlords, especially at the retail level. These are typically small footprint retail doors, you know, two to 5,000 square feet. And if you've got a $200 million commercial center that's anchored by a grocery or a movie theater, that the risk that your property management and servicing company has to maybe disallow cannabis servicing or, or it voids part of that agreement or your anchor tenant has waiver rights around what other tenancies can be around. Um, we had a really big project in an amazing center here in Scottsdale where an anchor tenant was, uh, I would say, highly religiously affiliated and did not want cannabis in the site. All the zoning got done. <laughs> the, like an amazing deal would have brought foot traffic back to the site. The landlord wanted it, but this anchor tenant said no, and it killed the deal. So anyone listening, kind of these are the really important, uh, obviously lots of people listening, Gordon, but anyone listening looking to get into cannabis those are the three critical pieces. And then there's obviously the complexity related to the zoning, permitting, making sure you have development design that meets state and local cannabis regulations for that actual physical infrastructure, infrastructure like security, um, safe rooms, ingress, egress that is a little different in cannabis sometimes than standard retail. So yeah, I think what we like to say, Gordon, is make sure you have a real estate brain trust on your team. If you are a broker, if you are a real estate professional, if you're an investor, make sure there's someone on your team that has cannabis experience. We often engage with third-party clients as that kind of fractional outsource brain trust. But it's the really exciting thing about today in cannabis, kind of the start of 2023, one of my big predictions for this year in the industry is that we it would be the first year that we will see a mass joining of standard real estate professionals that want to get into cannabis. You know, it's the whatever you want to call it, the tipping point, the toothpaste out of the tube. We now have over 40 states in the country that have some form of regulated cannabis, whether that's medical only or adult use or restrictive CBD related cannabis programs like Texas has, for example, uh, the vast majority of voters want this. Every poll that I've seen kind of over the past now six to 12 months has 70, 80% numbers across bipartisan, across demographics. So I think that's the big thing. If you're interested in, in touching the space, find some expertise, read everything you can and listen to these types of conversations where we're talking about the nitty gritty. Yeah. Um, so I know you touched on um, a couple different things that I'd like to come back to. One was security concerns, which is something that um, I have a friend that does uh, cannabis in the Chicagoland area, and, and that's been a big concern for them for a while. But uh, I think one of the most important ones that you hear folks talk about in the industry is 
financing. And a lot of that relates to things like build outs. Um, when you're doing a construction, a lot of uh, cannabis spaces, at least in Chicagoland, have been rehab spaces. Right. going into traditionally uh, disadvantaged communities and rehabbing and creating uh, uh, growing facilities there. How does one finance uh, like a major rehab when you can't use traditional banking? Yeah, that is that is literally the million and billion dollar question. In our- <laughs> uh, and, and for scope of the need, cannabis is now today doing around 25 billion in sales nationally. I mean, this is a big industry. Best estimates say that the total net economic impact gross for the country could be as high as 150 billion, maybe even 200 billion in the decades to come. I mean, we see, we have decent data from the history of crime reports of how much, you know, impounding of product arrests have been related to to narcotics, unfortunately, marijuana still being a federally illegal substance. So we know this is a hugely um, growing and high consumer demand industry. With those types of industries come major real estate financing needs. Exactly what you're asking, Gordon. Our best estimates is that over the next next decade, there will be a need for around 80 to 90 billion, with a B, worth of commercial real estate infrastructure investment and development. Uh, again, these are huge grow sites, you know, 50, $100 million greenhouse agricultural projects. We saw those happen in Canada. Um, and you got to be careful with those because a lot of companies want high technology automation. But that's a very customized tenant improvement that could be difficult to gain highest and best use value if, if your cannabis tenant has challenges. Um, but also just retail consumer facing dispensary doors, commercial sites. There are currently around 9,000 active retail cannabis licenses in this country. You know, liquor's got around 42,000. So, you know, if you look at coffee shops or, or liquor doors, probably some serious room for growth. This year alone, there were about 2,500 additional retail licenses added to the, to the national space. Um, so we're probably looking at, you know, six to eight billion for retail commercial development. So that's the scale. How do we get that money? That's what everyone's asking. Um, until there's federal reform, your best options are local credit unions, local banks, private lenders. Um, we secured a long-term 10-year debt structure recently with a bank. Um, and we kind of got in right at the squeak. We locked in a, around 7.5% interest rate for cannabis projects on a 10-year term. Um, obviously with interest rates today rising, those get really challenging, you know, variable rate prime plus prime plus two prime plus four, which is what you tend to see in cannabis real estate financing on the debt side. You know, that's a lot more expensive today, especially on a five-year loan, um, and bridge and mes funding, especially when there's cannabis use involved tends to be, you know, three-year term or shorter at can be 12 to 15% once you add upfront points. So a lot of times private investors is, is your best bet. You, you contact with the family office, you show your experience in real estate development, investing, you have a good operator in tow. You know, we're really focused on working directly with clients we've served and know well on the investment side. So we, we know the group, we know their sophistication. We're not going into a project blind 
you know, that's really important in commercial real estate investing and development in the cannabis space. Um, but yeah, the only other option that's really funded the majority of the cannabis space have been real estate investment trusts. Um, they've been primarily focused on large scale industrial and commercial sites. So that house the cultivation, the supply chain side, obviously bigger bang for the buck rather than focusing on small footprint retail. <laughs> so, yeah. And that's our specialty. Our focus is small, small retail because we love the frequency. We have the expertise to navigate projects efficiently, but there's probably around our best guess, somewhere around 20, maybe even as high as 30 billion has gone into the commercial cannabis space so far. And probably about 15 of that was through cannabis REITs. Um, but it's, you know, as a cannabis operator, if anyone in the audience is, is looking to run a business and find those real estate solutions, the metrics are obviously really important. Just because someone is willing to give you a couple million or even 10 million to fund your site, you sign a lease, you, know, you got to make sure you can make that rental payment. How, <laughs> how, how big's the delta from non-cannabis use? So if you're an outside investor, maybe you like being an LP and you're looking at some cannabis funds to put some money into, you know, what's that managing partnership? What's that GP looking at? You know, are they, are they putting that capital into projects that have a, a 10 times delta if something goes wrong and all of a sudden what's the dark value? You know, those are all critical elements um, you need to be familiar with if you're going to get involved in the space. But I'll, I'll just conclude that whole ramble with saying the opportunity is huge. You know, this is probably a once in a generation, you know, emerging industry. And if you can figure out how to navigate that labyrinth, there is a pretty significant reward at the end of the risk critical path. Well, look, I'm a fan of Led Zeppelin, so you can keep rambling on. But um, <laughs> in terms in terms of uh, understanding kind of the complexity of the uh, industry in terms of the different asset classes, um, I'm curious if you could touch on, uh, in particular, kind of three little tidbits on, or just a few tidbits on kind of the three primary asset classes, right? So you have your um, your growing operations. You have your processing and then you have retail, right? Am I correct on those three? So, yep. so when you're talking about growing operations, what kind of makes a growing facility typically in the cannabis industry versus, you know, any sort of other industrial or warehouse use? Yeah. So <clears throat> I'm certainly not a cannabis cultivation expert. There are, you know, legacy we typically, I refer to them as legacy experts. So they come from the pre-regulated era. Um, you know, some individuals, third generation, you know, Northern California is really famous, Humboldt County for, for having some amazing product. Um, but typically what we hear when we talk to operators, it is really dependent upon the product that they're looking to produce. So again, we're talking about now the agricultural or commercial asset class that has to do with growing sites. The two, really the two lanes of the asset class there are either greenhouse agricultural sites or indoor industrial sites, highly climate controlled, controlled environmental agriculture. You know, you're using lighting, artificial lighting to manipulate the cannabis plant cycle to produce a harvest yield. And you're trying to obviously use technology in those facilities, um, which is we can come back to if we have time, but the prop tech 
kind of property technology side of, of cannabis is really fascinating. We're doing a bunch with that too, but um, yeah, it, it's really very significantly connected to the demand yields from the consumer side in any given state. And so what we saw in Canada was a big roller coaster of when Canada legalized a few years ago, a bunch of the leading cannabis companies built multi-hundred million dollar facilities. So you saw the asset class of commercial cultivation real estate really rise in value. It was a really high demand, but Canada, and I'm Canadian, so I say this with love, but <laughs> Canada only has about 33, 34 million people. And the demand for the overall product that can be supplied got a little out of whack. So you actually saw a bunch of these large scale, 100 million plus cultivation facilities close because the supply was so much in surplus versus the demand and no international transport yet. So that the biggest risk on that side of the agricultural, commercial and industrial really making sure that your scalability of those facilities, your investment capex, your return on that capex investment calculations are done appropriately to what you can yield that produced product into the marketplace, whether that's wholesale or retail. And so this one of the fascinating things about commercial real estate and cannabis is, is trying to find good comps because it's not the same as each of these asset classes in general in traditional industry where, okay, there was a hundred industrial facilities sold last year. Let's look at the rates. Let's look at the potential net operating income from the various tenancies. And, you know, here's a standard cap rate for that area. And here's what your property is worth in cannabis. It's very different because that premium for what that highest and best use is, again, much more akin to something like a jewelry store, a casino, a, s a new sport book licensed facilities that are popping up across the country. You know, those, if anything changes with that piece of real estate's ability to operate that tenancy or that owner operated use, that CapEx might be so specialized all of a sudden it's not needed by anyone else. And, you know, you're, you're taking significant impairment on those investments. So it's, yeah, that asset class, high risk, high reward. Uh, and again, that's why we like the retail side, because there's even if you do have a you know three to four multiple based on supply and demand of available property, that tenant from a cash flow perspective, you know, isn't being choked or there isn't huge risk in the ability to replace. But again, very different. Oklahoma has thousands of licenses, Connecticut only has a couple dozen. You know, New York is and New Jersey are fascinating state case studies today um, because they're implementing uh, new programs, especially New York, that is very focused on reforming the war on drugs harm. So social equity programs, reinvesting in those communities, like you mentioned, Gordon. Um, but some of that creates very restrictive and highly regulated investment barriers or um, ownership investment restrictions, debt versus equity, and how it connects to the real estate goes kind of goes on and on. Yeah. So um, in our community, we've seen a lot of that in Chicagoland. We've seen yep. the families yep. that are owning um, uh, owning uh, many of the operations are very akin to some of the families that got uh, alcohol and liquor licensing right out with very politically connected families that many have 
the name of the governor or former governors in their yeah, family name or extended family. And so um, that's definitely something that we've seen. Um, going back on to talking a little bit more about um, some of the infrastructure, I know uh, you guys are really um, retail operations specialists. Could you tell a little bit about some of the unique demands of a retail operation? Because it's not like your standard big box shop, right? You have to have uh, kind of a unique approach. Can you touch on that? Yeah, and 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 on the I know you mentioned security earlier, which kind of wraps into this discussion. So on the retail side, where you're seeing the public-facing foot traffic, I don't know that cannabis is necessarily all that different from some other really high-demand retail doors that can create interesting challenges. So, you know, for example, I, I'm sure everyone's been looking at like the Chick-fil-A franchise. You look at the <laughs> sales per store over the past year; I think went up to like 6.8 million on average, or something. Oh yeah, I mean, fascinating operation. But right, and there, <laughs> I think a thousand people a day is their average of what they see. You know, which is several multiples over the next, you know, most popular fast food chains. But you know, Dutch Brothers is really big down here in the Southwest coffee shop. You know, in Canada, it's Tim Hortons. I know uh, Duncan <laughs> in many other regions. But you know, how do you deal with traffic flow, vehicle and foot traffic? Uh, cannabis is no different. It is because it is a very high demand industry. Uh, most densely populated areas can expect significant foot traffic. Um, some of the major brands in the cannabis space, you know, it's like anything in and out, you know, again, that has kind of a cult following the first in and out that comes to, I think it just first one opened in Tennessee or is going to, you know, and they'll probably have traffic lines around the block. Um, so Especially with all those California natives in Tennessee now, right? So, exactly. yeah. Right. Yeah, totally. <laughs> Which is another good point, Gordon. I mean, just general uh, per capita demographic consumer data is really influential in cannabis um, because it's, I, I, maybe it's not a well-known fact, but for us, we get a little bias, but I, I think the average majority, like if you had a room of 50 people and asked everyone to close their eyes and raise their hand if they were a cannabis user, you'd see a lot of hands go up. Um, it's still the paradigm is shifting from a hundred years of, of false propaganda, you know, the devil's lettuce and you'll go crazy if you smoke a joint. So those, we have a lot of quiet cannabis consumers, but that influences demand is my point. So when it comes to the infrastructure, it's really important to look at the design of that retail door in that manner. Many of the 40,000 localities and states that have legalized cannabis, because this is so new and for reasons to many of us in the industry that don't make sense, but they restrict or, or disallow drive-through or delivery. It is a, you know, you have to walk up, you have to show ID. So again, similar to a liquor store. Only recently have we been able to order wine to our houses and, and those kinds of things. Um, so you have to make sure that your design parking is a huge one. So we typically say that the, the four P's when it comes to retail cannabis, parking, perimeter, power, and permit. P people is another big one, workforce, but a lot of locations require a secure perimeter, sometimes even on retail. So that makes things challenging of how to drive in. You can expect because there's no drive-through delivery, imagine what in and outs parkings would need or Chick-fil-A's if they had a <laughs> drive-through, you know? I mean, 
you would yeah. need a movie theater. You need a Walmart parking <laughs> lot. Um, so, so those are things that it's great that local town managers and planning offices, and they're the heroes of cannabis. I mean, a lot of times planning offices get a bad rap. They're the bad guy. They're trying to reject permits, but this is a brand new industry with new regulations. These are individuals trying to figure out how to best serve their community, their master plan, you know, and they're learning about a new industry. So the great thing now in 2023 versus 10 years ago, or even two years ago is now planning offices are talking to each other. These are discussion points at the league of uh, the national league of towns and cities. These are, you know, we see, um, planning office managers, town managers, planning directors, calling other planning directors. How was your experience? How did you handle this? So back to those four Ps, those pieces of information and discussions influence how they regulate parking, perimeter, power, and permit. And so retail is not as big a deal with the power. Power is a really big one for industrial and suburban sites. <laughs> yeah, a lot of cooling needs and a lot of lighting needs. Um, but even small manufacturing, you know, operations. A lot of these, you know, the other interesting um, indus emerging industry and asset class that we haven't touched yet, but I'm watching is is uh, crypto mining sites. You know, we get calls. Hey, do you have a thousand square foot industrial lease with ten thousand amps? <laughs> no, that doesn't really exist. Um, but same challenges in cannabis. So those are the big ones on retail. And again, a lot of the projects, our clients tend to be either really proactive, you know, early or or in the industry, we refer to it as SSO and MSO, single state operator or multi-state operator. That's important, again, based on how cannabis is regulated, no interstate transport. So you're kind of setting up hubs in each state, which are regulated differently. Uh, but our clients tend to either be those multi-unit retailers that we're helping find new sites, navigate the development regulations and design, or triage clients, unfortunately. And so, you know, they maybe got a permit. It was in a new location that had no, you know, really no blueprint for how to regulate or plan for these. They opened up a retail dispensary with four parking stalls and, you know, they're dealing with a really angry community because there's cars parked everywhere and traffic is backed up. Um, so that's, I think it all comes back to the point that this is a, this emerging industry, it's a, it's a case study that has serious demand and popularity. And how do you embrace that as a local community, hyper-local development? And that will impact you as the real estate. Ultimately, if you're a long-term triple net investment grade landlord, you want your tenant to be thriving wildly so they can keep paying that premium rent payment. Because um, if they fail, you're going to be the one dealing with whether the licensing is attached to your property or whether the permit needs to be renewed and all, all of that fun stuff. Can you, can you talk a little bit more about site selection? Because I, I, I've seen it in, in our area and we've definitely seen some sites that were great for folks. And then also there's some sites and I won't list the village, but I was recently in a discussion with a, a village manager nearby us and it's been a mess um, for our area, Illinois, you know, everyone knows our state has some financial issues. And so a lot of localities are very willing to put in uh, retail because, you know, uh, you get, you get right. that nice tax. Right. Uh, 
But, but um, what are the major factors that are driving site selection for an investor? I know you mentioned those P's, but is there like a particular demographic or, or something that really highlights it for someone who's thinking about uh, using their license and, and moving in somewhere? Yeah, yeah. Great focus point here, Gordon. And I'm not sure how much time we have left, but if we're tight, this is a great thing to wrap on. But if we have more time, let's keep going. Uh, you, you can keep rambling on. It's fine. It's, it's good. <laughs> yeah, we'll and, I, and I say that I say that entirely jokingly. Um, it's been very informative thus far. Yeah. So Yeah, it's been a great conversation, Gordon. Um, so <clears throat> yes, yeah, site selection is the probably the most active thing we do as a company, especially nationally. Um, it's the most high in demand service need, and it's really our bread and butter. So our company, and I mentioned this in the beginning, but we really have four divisions of what we do. I mentioned the advisory consulting, we have a full commercial brokerage and we have an investment arm, but we also have a fourth division for property technology. And this is critical when it comes into site selection. It's probably the single most challenging part of, of getting a cannabis property or facility up and running is all these factors that come into not just generally for business, you know, on retail, where's good vehicle traffic, where's good signage exposure, where's good frontage, what kind of capabilities do I have to paint my building or, or really bring those consumers into the store on the on the other asset classes, manufacturing, processing, and in industrial agricultural for the grow sites, where is power availability? You know, where is their employment workforce? If you need a hundred people to come into a $20 million grow house, you know, better make sure that that demographic of worker is available in that community. Um, and as you mentioned, the great news is that we now have enough data 10 years ago, it was like, okay, you're promising tax dollars. We'll believe yeah. when we see it. Well, now we've seen it. You know, Illinois is amazing because I think like four years ago, the tax, cannabis tax eclipsed, eclipsed and passed liquor tax revenue for the state. Um, and we've done a bunch of work in Illinois, Ohio, and the Midwest uh, for site selection. The critical piece is that zoning. So in the cannabis industry for real estate, we call them green zones. These are the parcels of property that meet zoning restrictions and regulations. And I'm, I'm generalizing here. It's a little bit more nuanced, but essentially you have to be in the right zoning. So whether that's C2, commercial business, obviously varies locality to locality, and you have to meet various restrictions. The most difficult one is protected use setbacks. So almost all communities that enact cannabis Real estate codes and regulations require, and they're different everywhere, but they require you be a thousand feet from a school or a daycare, 500 feet from a residential district or a park. So you're immediately off the bat dealing with this highly nebulous, you know, challenge. It's not just, okay, show me where the purple shaded parcels are. <laughs> yeah. you know, it's, okay. I got to draw all these setback circles and forever we were doing that by hand you know we were literally google earth working with the municipalities there was no blueprint there was no system but the industry and you know what we provide directly has come a long way so we've invested directly in a proprietary prop tech platform that uses ai and machine learning technology 
to crawl each of those localities and create these interactive maps. We haven't launched this platform yet. It's called Rezone. So we've been in beta testing for the past year and we expect it to launch pretty imminently, likely within the next month or two. Sounds very cool. And, and so you either need, and it's not a perfect tool. We refer to it as an efficiency tool. You know, it gets all these GIS layers and, and data points in the same place. So, so we like to say it's, it won't find you the needle in the haystack, <laughs> but it will tell you which haystack to go look at. Um, <laughs> hey, that's very helpful. So, yeah. And so, I mean, that's really step one in the site selection is just what works. And the challenge most of our clients come across before they call us or someone like us or an informed broker or a land use attorney is they start with traditional metrics. They say, okay, let me go look at demographic of foot traffic and, you know, per capita income levels. And I'm going to find all the publicly listed commercial sites that are available. And then I'll check the ones I like, which is very inefficient. It's a lot of people, they start there because it's what you do in general. That's how you, it's your average retail brokers methodology, right? Yeah. And the challenge is you, most of our clients that have had this experience, they fall in love with a couple sites. We all know this, whether it's buying a house or finding a, <laughs> you know, we're, we're in love with our baby, this brand and company we built from the ground up and we want it to have an amazing home. Um, but you end up falling in love with sites and even negotiating leases ready to sign on the dot and only to find that the zoning doesn't work and you're not going to be able to get a permit to operate the site. So yeah, insight selection, starting with the regulatory side, which is the most difficult, it's taken us 10 years to get to the point where we can do it efficiently. Uh, and most of our clients that come to us say, you know, Hey, we have four retail dispensary doors in our first state. You know, we're a single state operator. We're seeing we've, we've figured the business out. We're doing amazing. We're cash flowing. We're very profitable. We want to five X our business across three new states go find us 10 new sites in these three states. Um, so Chicagoland, you know, Illinois, for example, has a new round coming out of licensing. I think it's 55 new social equity licenses that will be available. Um, and various, again, state to state, very important you check on the regulations. Some of these new licenses require you to identify secure and confirm real estate to be able to apply. Some allow you to apply first conditionally, and then you have to add the real estate location after you're awarded the license, usually a certain period of time where you have to meet that requirement. Um, New Jersey, for example, has a conditional set of retail licenses where you don't have to find the real estate until after you're awarded the license. And now there are hundreds of license awardees in New Jersey that are calling us and other brokers saying <laughs> I'm competing to find these, you know, very limited properties that work. Um, so that's, that's, it's critical in site selection. And then on top of that, everything we do in traditional commercial real estate, does the financial equation work? How's the landlord is insurance? Is there debt attached to the property? Does it need a refi? Should I be owner operator? You know, the, the 50 or so simple variables that, come with so uh we're on our way towards the end i i know we could probably talk for for hours on this and we'll it's do it we'll, yeah. this we'll, have a, we'll have a follow-up session whenever you we, want. we, we have to have a follow-up so um we always do on the real finds podcast we ask a final four and um the 
final four questions, we ask the same general questions of everybody, but we get very different answers and yeah. it's usually very enlightening. So the first one, and I know it'll be particularly enlightening uh, uh, from you is, look, 10 years from now, what do you think is going to have changed the most about cannabis and the real estate industry? Yeah, I think general adoption. So community level neighborhood street corner adoption, we're going to see, uh, and we didn't get into this, uh, maybe again, for follow up discussion, but cannabis is treated as a NIMBY industry, not in my backyard. Most of us commercial realtors and real estate people know that. That's oh, I mean, I've, I've sat in on meetings. Uh, I, <laughs> I know. So I think that's the biggest change over the next 10 years, Gordon, that Cannabis has, again, forever been treated with this false propaganda as this really dangerous thing for our communities. And if done right, it is, I believe, will be one of the most critical factors to community prosperity, economic growth, property value increase, tax dollars for the community for reinvestment, violent crime decreases, so safety in our communities increases. You know, you just naturally are no longer arresting individuals for minor uh, marijuana offenses, you know, so that's the entire debate about justice and, and social equality within our communities. So, yeah, I think that's the biggest change over time will be acceptance of this emerging industry, the influx of traditional professionals that will normalize the industry. Um, and I'm, I'm hopeful we will see those prosperity metrics proven, you know, across the board from the work we do, if we get it done right. Yeah, I'm going to just have one quick follow up on that. And so the one quick follow up is, as we start to see more adoption, um, every industry as it matures consolidates, do you think that we'll be able to have the same um, diversity that we have right now in the industry 10 years from now, or will it be a much more consolidated branded industry? Yeah, man, great question, tough question. I think we are we are in a M&A consolidation phase of the evolution curve. You know, we're moving probably from we've definitely moved from early innovator to early adopter. We may be seeing 2023 to 2025 the crossing of the chasm into early majority. Um, it's the federal restrictions that are really hurting the diversity of this industry in my opinion. So you have especially the financial capital restrictions. Um, you have all these legacy, this massive graph, grassroots movement. We talked about a very diverse base of operators and knowledge experts in this industry that know the product, know how it treats, can treat a patient or a consumer on the adult use side. But that restriction the lack of access to banking, lack of access to capital, insurance, you know, all those real estate difficulties, it's allowing large corporate cannabis entities really to thrive and, and, cons and are consolidating to be able to compete. Um, you know, the costs are very real. You have increased legal costs, compliance costs, the tax circumstance at the federal level is pretty wild if you're a plant touching company. So um, without going any further down the rabbit hole right now, <laughs> I think that the answer to your question, Gordon, will we see increased diversification of everything, of operators, of races, of nationalities, of ages, of experiences? I think, yes, I'm hopeful that that grassroots culture remains. We need it. The industry will be sorely hurt if we lose it. Um, but we need to open the door for all of those individuals to be able to compete fairly. 
and not be able to suffer from restrictions that only huge well-funded corporations um, can surpass. And again, I'm, I'm, I'm pro everything, mom and pop to corporation, but the diversity really needs kind of the equal playing field or it will, we've seen over, unfortunately, really the past five years, a decrease in minority owned businesses in cannabis and female owned businesses in cannabis. A lot of that has to do with access to capital. Yeah, look, um, I'm sure we can have a whole separate conversation just about that. Um, I I can say from my perspective, look, I haven't done uh, cannabis deals, but we've done a lot of deals with um, your traditional liquor and, and brewery groups and everything changed in 1979, right, with Jimmy Carter. So uh, federalization of, of cannabis is going to change things ultimately uh, cool. when that comes. And so we'll probably get to that. Um, on, on the second question of our final four, um, this is one of my favorites. It's if you could travel back in time to the start of your career, what advice would you give young Brian? Oh man, there's, there's probably a lot. Um, I think surround yourself with like-minded individuals that share your values and long-term vision. Um, I think that's something, that's a good one. Yeah. <laughs> something I did okay at, but you know, I didn't realize the, as much of the importance, especially in a difficult industry like cannabis, it's something we worked hard over the past five, six years. We've really grown our team uh, from one or two people initially. Now we've got about 15 people. We're opening new state brokerage offices with some amazing individuals and, you know, talent acquisition and investment is so critical. So Surround yourself by like-minded people who care about the same thing, share the same business culture and investment culture and work culture, uh, and you'll thrive. That's great advice. I, I, I can't uh, disagree with any of that. Um, so uh, one of my other favorites, um, and we ask this of everybody, is what real estate or business books have influenced your career the most? And it can be one, it can be multiple. I'm a big reader. Um, and there's a bunch of them behind me. Uh, do you yeah. have one or a I couple in particular? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. I mean, I'm a, I'm an avid reader, a perpetual student forever. Uh, I mean, all of like the real estate 101 investing books just digest everything. But the specific one I refer to and think about very often is, is not even necessarily strictly a real estate book, but crossing the chasm. So okay. yeah. an amazing yeah. book about entrepreneurship and emerging industry and, and how you get past that growth point that sinks most businesses. Um, I find that for real estate, it's, it's critical, especially as a startup investor, you're working on your first couple projects, you know, the economy of scale and real estate, we all know is critical. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, that way. Hey, no, that's, that's a great one. Um, and so we're going to do our final question. And, and this is the most important of all, because the whole point of the Real Finds podcast is to find people, right? Find people who are influencing the industry, changing the world, activists, scientists. So what, what's the, uh, the person or who is the person that we should be bringing on next? So it can be, you know, an activist, a scientist, someone at, at, at Zoned. Who's the person you would recommend to hop on the podcast next? Yeah, well, I'd love, uh, maybe I'll do a two-part question. A selfish, that's, in, that's fine. Yeah. Selfish internal and then a, an external objective answer. But um, Barrick Blackwell is our chief operating officer. has been with the company now for a couple years. Just an extremely talented, kind, uh, and hardworking individual. 
I'm, I'm so excited we have him on the team and he's, he's thriving here. So he's really worked to build out our national advising and brokerage services. Um, he's in the, you know, boots in the mud, in the trenches with our clients. So a lot of great stories he has. would love to get him on the podcast to chat with you. We'd love to have him on. <laughs> so we'll do, that. we'll do that for sure. And then maybe I'll, I'll keep it cannabis specific. Uh, That's fine. Yeah, this is a cannabis podcast yeah, today. Yep. So, but a, a big name individual that I just always love hearing from and and respect a lot, Steve D'Angelo. He's one of kind oh, of yeah. the grandfathers of cannabis. Was was Harborside his original dispensary in California, uh, Northern California, really paved the way for the industry to regulate. And you know, it's it's there's so many individuals, but he's one. You know, not sure what his, I know he's crazy busy, but if we could get him on the podcast, <laughs> it's a, it'd be a really great conversation. Well, we can be pretty persuasive. We'll, we'll have to see. Um, Brian, thank you so much for hopping on the podcast. And uh, it's, it's been an absolute blessing to have you on and uh, uh, we'll have to have you on again. Wonderful. would love to come back anytime, Gordon. <laughs> and if you enjoyed the podcast, please give us a like, a five-star rating or review. Your comments and interactions and subscriptions matter for the podcast algorithm, and they help us continue to get guests our viewers want to listen to and learn from. You can follow us on YouTube, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Gordon Lamphere with The Real Finds Podcast. Thank you for listening.